This episode is sponsored by EY. Money is changing, both in form and function. Money Reimagined is about the changing nature of money, digital currencies, and various topics related to finance, blockchain technology, artificial intelligence, and more. Michael Casey and Sheila Warren walk us through the dynamic and evolving nature of the global economy and the implications for businesses, governments, and individuals as they must adapt to new payment methods and technologies. Welcome to Money Reimagined. Hello, I'm Michael Casey, and this is the Money Reimagined podcast with my co-host, Sheila Warren. Make sure that you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. This is part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. So, Sheila, we've just come off consensus, the big kind of circus of the Coindesk calendar, <laughs> the circus of the, the crypto calendar that we like to believe, and I think we are indisputably it is the case that this is the most important conference in the calendar. Uh, and this was, to me, no exception. In fact, I would argue, even though the numbers were slightly lower than last year, they were significantly higher than we expected, which is great, given that we're in the middle of crypto winter and we know that that was an impact on things. I think it felt even more important than any other consensus I've ever been to. I think it went very well. We got a lot of very good feedback. And partly because I think there's so much tension at the moment, which is obviously a negative thing, but it just means that the conversation is urgent and important around regulation in particular. Well, consensus is definitely the annual hootenanny uh, held in Texas. Hootenanny. Uh, yes. So I use that word deliberately held in Austin, Texas. Uh, yeah. You know, every conference, I think, you know, the conference circuit is back in full full play, right, in every sector. And, and all conferences, I think, are a bit muted compared to last year when I think people were kind of initially emerging from the pandemic and everyone's like, oh, my God, we can be in person together, you know. And this year, I think, um, between travel, people being a little travel exhausted and other things, you know, all conferences are a bit muted. But I will tell you, I thought the energy at Consensus was phenomenal. What I liked about it was I thought it was very focused energy. You know, there's like this uh, funny saying yeah. in Washington that some people focus like lasers and some focus like disco balls. And in previous years, I have felt like there was just almost too much Ooh. going on. Like, yeah, yeah. Woo, you know. But this time, um, it, it was it was more focused, and people are are really the, the serious people are still here. You know, I think right. it just I think that it was reflected in, in attendance and in conversations, uh, panels. In my view, uh, and you know, you and I co-hosted two of the days basically, so we got to hear a lot of the content more than I usually do, which was really wonderful. More focused and deeper and richer uh, than I think even in years past. Consensus always has great content, but this year it was really a level of nuance that I was really enjoying. Uh, I feel like I learned a lot, um, which again, I always feel. So that was really lovely. But yeah, it was interesting to see. And of course, on the last day, we did a, we did read out of the survey. The survey we, results. The were attendee pretty, survey. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? That was interesting. Yeah, yeah, we do. So that survey that we did, uh, releasing the results on Friday, uh, where we had polled attendees through the app. I think the thing that was most compelling about it was this clear focus on the regulation issue. In fact, the very first question of the bat was, what is the most pressing issue facing the crypto industry in the US? And 89% of respondents said it was regulation slash policy. The next highest one was public image of crypto, which was 5%, right? So just absolutely overwhelmingly 
the consensus community, the attendees believe that in the US, regulation is the most important thing. Um, interestingly, quite a different split when you look at the same question applied to outside the US. So that what is the most pressing issue facing the crypto industry outside the US? Um, actually, public image was the highest at 32%, and regulation policy was second at 28%. Mm. Uh, tech challenges actually were elevated to be 18% as uh, amongst the, the respondents on saying that that was the most important issue outside the US. And so there's just a very clear dichotomy there. Yeah, I actually think the global survey results are, are a lot healthier, to be honest. I mean, mm -hmm. part of the concern is that, you know, some of these, these folks being surveyed are, are not necessarily policy people. They're builders and they're people mm -hmm. involved in other parts of the ecosystem. And the fact that they are flagging this, uh, you know, you want builders building, right? But of course, if they don't know the environment in which they're building, they don't understand the regulatory constraints within which they're building. It's complicated. It's hard to know how to move. Uh, and so I think it's quite telling that you're seeing that huge disparity. You know, one thing I'll say is um, I think that regulation and policy are, are becoming moving to the forefront in a variety of sectors. And, and you know, I always check my own bias because it's a space I've been involved in for, you know, decades. Uh, but it's it's even beyond our industry. So so after consensus this week, I was actually at, at Milken at the Milken Global Conference down in L.A. And there were really interesting observations from that, I think. Very different set of folks much more uh, there, there's focus on like health and environment and entertainment and media, you know, and, and financial services as well. Uh, a, a notable absence of the term crypto. Very interesting. It's all digital mm -hmm. assets, digital assets, digital assets, right? It's a notable absence of that term. Uh, fintech also leaning heavily into fintech, but it's kind of a, a veil for crypto. A lot of folks speaking about fintech were really crypto builders, which is interesting. Uh, but yeah. also a lot of focus across all of those topics on regulation and policy more than in years past. And I think we're kind of seeing in the United States a very interesting time where we are rethinking, well, to some extent, and, and almost attempting to refashion, depending on who you are, uh, the checks and balances in our system of government, right? Hmm. So that I find that very fascinating. And so hmm. I kind of uh, was making an analogy to somebody of the SEC and the FDA, Right. So on the one hand, you've got all these court cases coming out in the United States, all this different activity happening around Mifepristone, around abortion access, these kinds of things. The FDA's ability to approve a drug, which made headlines in the United States, which you know, uh, was very interesting. And that's all related. Right. Like if, if a court comes down and says that the FDA overstepped its authority, then the implications for the SEC are quite interesting because administrative agencies over the past, I mean, you certainly see, I think, well, I would, my view, I should say, is that Chair Gensler is really trying to expand the authority of his particular agency that he chairs at this time. And this is an interesting climate in which to be seeking to do that. Yeah. I mean, the judiciary, therefore, in some respects, being at loggerheads with that. Is that the point here? Like, I mean, the, yeah. the courts are throwing out, like, talking about these agencies overstepping their boundaries. And it's interesting to think about the way that the Supreme Court, at least, is stacked. Um, and if crypto, God help us if it does, but it does seem as if there's a certain risk of politicization happening where, you know, it, certainly the, the you know, Gensler's approach within the SEC appears to be politically driven or at least have a have the feel of being this is democratic activism and it's, it's playing to a certain progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Then the natural kind of counterpoint to that is this, 
Republicans telling him that he's overstepping his boundary. We've seen that from the, the banking committee, the from from the Services Kennedy, Committee, yeah, Finance Services Committee, uh, coming back and sort of like challenging these issues right there. And then, if it does make it to the courts, I don't know. I mean, we but, have a very different Supreme Court than we've had right, in the past, and right. we have it goes all the way different... to the top. Then we would be really interesting to see that challenge. Crypto becomes a Supreme Court case would be pretty interesting. Well, it's um, not out of bounds. I mean, it right. wouldn't be about crypto qua crypto. It would be about this broader about, question, about, which sorry, again right. is not unique to our industry. It's coming up in agriculture. It's coming up in environment with the EPA. It's coming yeah. up with the FDA. You know, these are agencies that, that are have nothing to do with financial services or assets or or our internet architecture or technology. You know, apart from very obliquely, right? This is the context, and I, I don't. I think a lot of people in, in the crypto industry miss this in part because you know folks have not. We're still getting used to the idea that regulation and policy is incredibly and critically important, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, I think that's a no-brainer, but here we are, right? So that's widening awareness as evidenced by these survey results, especially in the United States. But I do think this is the broader context on which this is playing out. And so these things, they, they are political because the political issue here is what is the power of the administrative state? Mm-hmm. And you had under Earl Warren, a previous Supreme Court justice, not to go too much into the history here, you had an expansion of the administrative state. And the idea mm-hmm. that you know, there there was a role for executive oversight, and we should appoint experts to these agencies that are protecting the American people from chemicals or what, everything from chemicals mm-hmm. to pollution to whatever it is, right? Uh, to fraudsters and criminals, whatever it is. And if that suddenly becomes uh, distinctly curtailed, that has implications across a wide variety of sectors. And so this is, I think, that the battle of the age, and it's playing out in different ways in different industries. But as I was listening to content, both at Consensus and at Milken, this is what struck me as a common thread. And anybody who's a lawyer and who's a constitutional lawyer, not that I'm a constitutional lawyer, but I certainly have that in my background, is kind of thinking about this, is looking at this as, as really quite, um, we are shaping the next you know, one to two generations of how the government actually functions and how these branches engage with each other. The three branches, of course, being executive, legislative, and judicial in the United States. Now, contrast that to other countries. Now, as you know, you know, Michael, I've been part of discussions around the world for many years in my previous role, you know, and, and including in this role. Uh, Mika, for example, is something that you know I've been engaged with in various ways for many, many years now. Mm-hmm. Markets and Crypto Asset Act in Asset Assets Act in, in Europe, which is now moving into the implementation phase after the last vote was uh, passed to, to authorize it. And you know, the Gulf is stepping up big time here. You've got VARA, you've got Abu Dhabi, you've got ADGM looking at this stuff. You've got Brazil starting to play a role, Japan, you know, so the panel I moderated. Many of them were featured at consensus, I just want to say that. I mean, we had a whole Japanese exactly. session. We had, uh, yeah, we had a woman from VARA in, in Dubai, the Virtual Assets Regulatory Authority there. We had a UK representative, which is starting exactly. to link heavily into this. Yeah. Yeah. And so every other country, right, their systems of government are in part different and they're not reckoning in the same way with this kind of what is the role right. of government challenge that we are reckoning with here in the United States? Right. So the idea that other governments, are, you know, regulators are ahead of us is is multifaceted. It's not just well, it's right? fascinating that you bring this at this high level about executive authority and legislative authority because I think in some respects this is a direct result of dysfunction within the legislature. Gridlock, politicization of it. Like we've been saying for ages on this show, it's time for this comprehensive regulatory approach. We've sort of alluded to 1996 when the Telecom Act was pushed through and how how much of a landmark piece of legislation that was for defining the future of the internet. And that the same similar approach could have could happen here. And of course, it's got nowhere, right? And it's got nowhere partly because of dysfunction, just because 
uh, a very divided Congress and a highly politicized Congress. So into that is to like, if you step, to put Gary Gensler aside, of course, people love to hate him in the crypto world and people might love to love him in progressive circles. Everybody wants a nemesis, you know, there it is. Right, right, right. But just, but just say, just treat it as a systemic thing, an element of what happens when there are power vacuums. You know, there's a power vacuum. What do you, what do you expect the executive authority to do? Of course, they're going to reach for power. This is, this is the nature of, of, of government. This is why we have the Westminster system, the separations of powers, because this is what executive branches always do. So if you just treat it like that as a kind of a phenomenon rather than a personalized thing, then the real problem is Congress, right? And, and so it's very interesting then that Congress's failure results in this sort of overreach and sort of excessive, you know, regulation by enforcement model, et cetera, et cetera. And then that gets resolved by the judiciary, which you know, is yeah, so, be hopefully neutral, but at the same time has been itself highly politicized in recent years, certainly at the Supreme Court level. Well, no kidding. So I do think that, you know, the premise of a checks and balances system is that each body is acting in a way that balances the other mm. bodies, right? And the bodies, of course, again, are, you know, Congress, the courts, and the executive branch, which includes administrative agencies, right? So so that is that is the premise and predicate of a functioning system that operates on checks and balances. And, and certainly if that is out of balance, and I think there's a couple of things happening here, Michael, in addition to, you know, Congress and the gridlock that we're kind of we're seeing in this sort of in this time. But remember, this is not the first time we've had a split Congress, right? But it is the first time we've had such an activist Supreme Court and yeah. judiciary system. So that's so one could argue that the what's out of balance is actually the courts who are taking a much more activist role. And again, a role we haven't seen since the Earl Warren court, you know, back in the day, which of course was operating in a much more progressive model. And well, the other way, the direction. Other- and it's ironic that, you know, conservative judges complain about, you know, activist liberals when in fact not political. That's right. Activism is not political. It is basically extending the boundaries of what the court is weighing in and should be weighing in on. Right. So, so that's really interesting. And then you've got the uh, executive agencies and executive agencies, you know, I mean, one could argue that they certainly seem to they their view on this, I would imagine, is that they're doing their jobs. Now, yeah. we have views on Chair Gensler, but there are other agencies and agency heads who, you know, other industries have their issues with those folks and other, you know, it, it's not unique to us. I do think that Chair Gensler is unique from the standpoint of we're talking about federal, you know, we're, we're talking about something that affects every single citizen. And I would argue that the EPA and the FDA affect every single citizen and every single resident in the United yeah. States as well. People don't think about it the same way. It doesn't get the same press, you know, et cetera. Right. Um, but I go back to last year in the West Virginia versus EPA case, which I talked about on the show and, and wrote some wrote about a little bit, which is which is trying to narrow what's called uh, Chevron deference. And uh, very briefly, what that means is the idea that you know, the courts really ought to defer to administrative um, agencies' expertise because the idea there is that you are hiring, you know, there's a bunch of folks who are long-term staffers who are experts in their topic area. They're making assessments and decisions. And in the absence of action by Congress, the court really ought to defer to what the administrative agencies deem appropriate. And so here you've got the court chipping away at that concept and saying, well, hmm, and now is that because Congress is acting or not? Acting? It, it's unclear. And, and I think it's you could argue it a well, number of different ways. But the point is right. the balances are off. The checks and balances aren't functioning the way they function, you know, because of these changes. You would also want those experts to be sort of rather narrowly defined, both in terms of their expertise and the kind of tenure of their of their leadership, right? Because I don't know, again, now we're getting personal again. But if you look at Gary Gensler, it's you know, he he was 
he's had a, a very interesting Washington degree. He was at the, uh, you know, an undersecretary, was the assistant secretary, I can't remember, at the Treasury in the Clinton era. He was the chair of the CFTC during um, Obama's presidency, and now he's the chair of the SEC. He's had stints, obviously, uh, on Wall Street, but a lot of this time revolving in and out of these places and has made it fairly clear to people that he's got big political ambitions, right? And so the idea that he's a neutral expert that is there just to sort of is allowed and given the space to apply that expertise is completely distorted if there is actually political ambition that's kind of being riding onto this that has this other agenda attached to it, right? I think whether or not that's true, it certainly is a suspicion of many, many people watching what he's been up to. In a way, that in itself is undermining that, that model. Yeah, well, I don't know that it's so much that they need to be neutral per se. I think it's that there are perceived to be enough checks and balances in the system of who has to appoint them and who has to approve that and all that kind of thing. And the idea of Chevron deference is, you know, the court certainly, well, I would say, the, 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 the court claiming that it knows more than the head of an agency about how to interpret an ambiguous statute seems bananas. I mean, right. on its face, it seems yeah, sure. silly, right? Surely the agency knew what it meant when it created a new rule or a new statute or whatever it was. And so what Chevron Deference is about is saying in the absence of ultra clear clarity, you know, you, you, we really ought to defer to the agency to provide the interpretation. Right. Weakening that, what that means is that then people, and again, a variety of industry or nonprofit or civil society or whatever it is, it's not just industry, but a variety of different sectors don't really know where to turn. And so does everything now have to be litigated? Does everything have to be litigated? So crypto is getting caught up in this, right? And so Chair Gensler, definitely, I I think we all are very united in our view that this is an overstepping and, you know, this is the regulation by enforcement, all the things we talk about all the time in this industry and on the show. But it's the broader context here is this conversation. Yeah. Sure. Are you looking to fast track your enterprise growth? With tools and solutions from EY, you could run your essential business applications, including private transactions and zero knowledge applications on public Ethereum. From supply chain to procurement to sustainability, EY blockchain's APIs and zero knowledge tools make public Ethereum accessible to all enterprise users. Find out why some of the world's leading companies are building on Ethereum with EY. Visit us at blockchain.ey.com. Since this is a crypto audience, like we bring it back to that, I think it's yep. it's either no coincidence or just nonetheless really important that there is actually a, a quite a large amount of litigation now underway against the SEC by crypto companies that has the potential to wind its way up into this higher level conversation around authority that that these agencies have. So we've got what Coinbase is now involved uh, in its own case, but it's also been a a party to which is the grayscale case. We've got others. I mean, the Coin Center itself has has, has filed lawsuits. There's, there's a really interesting array of cases that could uh, result in some sort of resolution. And it does look to me, again, the judiciary, of course, is not monolithic. That's the reason why we have you know different layers of the judiciary as well. But in the one or two cases where we've seen some some voicing and some decision making from judges, for example, the Voyager bankruptcy case. The judge was extremely frustrated by mm-hmm. the SEC's ambiguous position about, well, yeah, it might be a security and therefore this is the Voyager token. You know, you need to hold up the case. And the, the bankruptcy says, I'm not going to let these creditors, you know, I'm not going to get in the way of a resolution of this thing here because you might believe such and such, right? Be clear about what your position is, which was 
rather refreshing to, to hear. Um, and then that 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 deal went through. And then, of course, uh, we yet to see the ruling on this, but the, the the initial hearing, I think the only hearing, in fact, in Grayscale's lawsuit against the SEC with regard to its uh, rejection of its ETF application, um, the judge, you know, seemed to be more uh, friendly than than people had expected toward the Grayscale argument that that the SEC was being, you know, inconsistent in in its positioning on on uh, the treatment of either cash or futures-based ETFs. I don't know. Like, I mean, that's just two cases and it doesn't make, you know, a data set. There's a lot more to that. But I, I think the feeling of the community right now is we're not getting much love out of uh, working with the agencies, lobbying, et cetera, and certainly no progress in Congress for the time being, notwithstanding Patrick McHenry's optimistic uh, response at the very end of consensus on Friday that we're going to get any legislation. And so I'm sure that the industry is just cheering on this litigation right now. Like, it's like, this is it. This is how we're going to solve the problem. But they're they're wading into a bigger minefield when they do that, I think. Look, anybody who files a lawsuit is generally focused pretty narrowly and specifically on the outcome of that particular lawsuit and isn't necessarily sure. trying to set precedent, unless it's impact litigation, right? And those are yeah. different kinds of folks that bring suit. So uh, when you're looking at you know impact litigation, you're looking at really changing uh, the tone and the approach and, and, and a lot of different things. And in these cases, you know, they could well be decided on very narrow merits about, I, I certainly hope that they, you know, go the way that I think we all want them to go and, and um, or hope they go and uh, I think they should go uh, and do end up setting precedent, but that may not be the case. They may have very narrow rulings. You don't know what you're going to get, right? You don't always know what judge you're going to get. You don't always know what outcome you're going to get. And litigation takes a really long time. Litigation doesn't, you know, there's appeals and things can go all the way up to the Supreme Court for all you know, like you don't really know. And so you got to be prepared for some of those things. And, and I guess what I'm just saying is this is happening in the broader context of this transition that we've seen happening for, you know, a decade or more with FedSoc and with other kinds of groups that have been really trying to place more conservative judges on the court. Now, I would argue those judges are similarly activists from the standpoint of trying to act. I think activism is about you know, engaging in extraterritorial, extrajudicial kinds of considerations around things. And I think that, you know, I, that's what I observe. Um, now, that being said, you know, the idea there is to kind of cut down scope uh, of government, because, of course, a lot of conservatives, the whole point of, you know, low C conservatives is smaller government, you know, let the market work, etc. And we're seeing that because a lot of these judges are on the bench and they're on the bench all over the country, particularly in the Fifth Circuit. So it's really interesting to watch how some of this is going to play out in other things. So, you know, the Western versus EPA case that I cited had a narrow outcome about the EPA, but it was a much broader, uh, you know, uh, ruling and from the standpoint of what it meant for this Chevron deference and this kind of this, this concept of what the scope and authority of an administrative agency in terms of interpreting its own statutes ought to be, which is a really big deal. So you just never know. And a court could choose to take the opportunity to shove in some of that other stuff, you know, into a case that ostensibly isn't necessarily exactly about that. Uh, and that isn't always something that I think is on everyone's minds. So like I say, I know we started off talking about these kinds of uh, consensus and milk and these kinds mm -hmm. of things and what we observe. But, you know, what's really interesting to me is always rolling up a little bit and thinking about this bigger picture. And the big difference to me that I noticed, which I think was reflected in our survey results, no one's thinking about this topic we just talked about today, but in these survey results is the idea that, you know, regulation and policy in the United States are not only top of mind, but far and away, what did you say, 89% to 2%, yeah. whereas in other jurisdictions, it's much healthier balance of, yeah. look, we got to work on, you know, UX and UI, There's, we got to like work on cybersecurity, whatever it is, with, you know, regulation and policy and with public image, like how are people thinking about engaging in this 
um, ecosystem and how are they feeling about that, which I think is also really important, I would argue. But that's a much healthier balance than what you'd expect to see versus this really disproportionate response in the United States. And I think that is about broader uncertainty uh, about government as a general proposition that is hmm. manifesting in our industry in a particular way, but is also manifesting in a variety of other spaces in ways that, you know, aren't necessarily relevant to the crypto industry, but I would argue actually are obliquely relevant because of the broader kinds of changes yeah. and shifts that are slowly potentially happening that are going it to is, be very, is, very relevant to us. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's the perception of government, the whole positioning of, of that right. social covenant almost between the public and and its governance that, that is, I think, uniquely acute right now in the United States. You, I, I think we need to run this up pretty quick, but like just yep. a couple of quick other observations to serve that I think are important here as well. Questions around um, what US companies should do and what the impact of this is on, you know, the strategies by the industry, for example, right? So one of them is like, how should US crypto companies respond to recent regulatory actions? Voice lobby and protest was 86%. Uh, another one, for US-based businesses, do you plan to re relocate offshore? Yes, said 12%, and no, said 50%. But interestingly, considering it still was 37%, so almost uh, a 50-50 split between those that are at least considering or are going to relocate, the implication being as a response to you know these sort of regulatory uh, challenges. Um, for US-based businesses, have you difficulty getting bank accounts? 40% saying yes. Um, and then, you know, for non-US business leaders, have you changed plans for your US activities? We've got yes, saying 25%, no, 38%, and still weighing the situation, 40%. So, look, I mean, uh, clearly, you know, some variety there, but at the same time, high in mind in, in the way that people are thinking about this is whether or not to do business in the United States, given the regulatory environment, given this sort of banking problem as well. And that, I think, is something that we've talked about a lot, but I think it just brings this home that at some point, this question about where the US wants to position itself vis-a-vis -vis innovation in this space, but also in AI and lots of other sort of related digital areas of innovation and, and whether or not the right regulatory framework is in place to sustain that is just going to be a really important question. I mean, these are businesses that can move offshore if they want to yeah. and, and are seriously thinking about it. You know, I addressed this yesterday in my session at Milken and, and even on stage, I think a consensus that it came up as well, which is you know, there are a lot of reasons you choose to, to locate or HQ in, in a place, right? Regulation is one of them. It, you know, tech talent, uh, taxation, immigration, quality of life, you know, safety. There's all kinds of reasons, you know, weather, you know, there's all kinds of reasons that you might choose to HQ. It's interesting to see that in our space, again, as reflected in these results, regulation is really outside. Now, it's always critically important if you don't know what you're building in. But I think what's really interesting to observe is, you know, as you see some of the biggest actors, Coinbase, Gemini, you know, the ones that, you know, that, that I know uh, that I'm familiar with, you know, as they're talking about the other places they're getting licensed, they're not going to like shady jurisdictions at all. They're going to Bermuda, which has a pretty tight regime on this stuff. They're going to Singapore, which has a pretty tight regime. And I think that that is emblematic and indicative of the, the veracity behind their claims that what they're looking for is regulatory clarity. They're not looking for, you know, necessarily um, easy, skimpy regulation. They're looking for a place where they know that what they're building is built into a foundation that is solid. 
mm-hmm. and they just don't have that in the United States. So, yes. uh, you know, I, I, I think where folks are, I don't want to call it offshoring because I don't think it's offshoring yet. I think it is, you know, um, I think it's being smart and practical and pragmatic, frankly, and saying, what are other places where maybe we already operate or maybe we could operate or maybe, you know, whatever it is, right? I think there's a lot of considerations going into this. So in my mind, this is not, I don't, I don't call it offshoring to people who have really done a major move and like they really, you know, move people to a different place. Like that, that is offshoring. This is, right. you know, being pragmatic and, and, and being another place. These are global companies. So it's not surprising right. that they're doing this anyway, right? That being said, the places they're going are pretty robust, you know, which is interesting. Well, I think one thing that you can say is that in some respects, the regulators have won. I mean, they've, they've tamed this industry. Um, it, it was striking to me that um, in some respects, because of the exception that proved the rule that it represented, was a comment from Eric Voorhees of Shapeshift. Um, and Eric, of course, you know, quite an outspoken libertarian. And you know, he was being asked about like, what would he like to see in the regulatory front? And he just said, I just want to see less regulation. That's all I care about, less regulation. And that is striking because you don't hear that out of the mouths of most crypto people these days at all. I mean, that was a sort of a, a mindset of the early Bitcoin world. And I'm sure there are still plenty of folks from there who, who hold this view. But it was just that this is actually uh, a technology for the sake of, of actively avoiding regulation. And that the stereotype of the industry was, was built around that, which I think is also one of the reasons why there's been challenges in terms of the relationship with regulators, that this industry somehow represented this this big exit from from the world, and I think now that you the conversation, rightly or wrongly, is quite different. It's like, please regulate us, give us something here. We need we need certainty. We need, we need which, in some respect, is a victory for for regulators. In that, like you know, people are not. And you and I have talked at length about the problems of KYC regimes and you know anti money laundering and how difficult that burden is being placed upon the poor, in particular for financial inclusion, but. From what I gather, most crypto companies have just thrown up their hands and said, I, I, you get it. All right, whatever. I'll, I'll do whatever KYC, AML procedures you need, which I think is a problem because I'd really love to see some innovation around that. But there's just, you can't fight. You can't fight City Hall on these particular issues. What you can fight is, is, is this jurisdiction versus jurisdiction situation. And, and you're right. It's not like a wholesale everybody running offshore, but they're going to these places to say, yes, 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 we need to be regulated. Please regulate us. But I don't want to be here. I want to be there. And yeah. um, I think that's, if you think about it from a global perspective, it is almost as if it is the taming of this industry in many respects. Well, let me nuance that a bit, though, right? Because I think that in, the industry is hardly monolithic. And I think a bunch of these folks have been saying that for a long time. Uh, you know, I, I, I think they've been going to the SEC and saying, like, what do we, how do we come in under their fold? How do we, what do we do? How do we register? How do we, our business, the way we operate our business we don't even we literally do not know how we articulate that in the documents you're requiring us to file because it's not clear what we're supposed to do, right? So really looking for that. And so I, I think that is a version of saying, you know, hey, regulate us. It's not certainly fighting that. There's still a part of the industry that maintains that, you know, it's impossible to regulate, you know, crypto and how dare you in this kind of business. And that still exists. Okay. But I do think more people. Uh, are coming around to the idea that many in this industry have had for quite some time, which is, you know, as I, I've always said, and that's one of the reasons I'm in the role I'm in now, is, you know, at some point, regulation is a catalyst for growth. Oh. Uh, it really is, because consumers want to know that there is some agency, whether they believe in that or not, or whether they're views in government or not, 
there is some comfort, I think, from the idea that there is oversight of some kind happening in industry. I mean, I think that's it's the premise of American business, whether now we could argue that to death, but I think at some point regulation can be a catalyst. And you're certainly seeing that in other parts of the world um, where some of the things that happened in the United States were massive bombs that got dropped were blips. Uh, you look at FTX, FTX in Japan was like, they're like, whatever. I mean, no one's, no one's talking about it. Why? Because right. they had a regulation, they had a regulatory environment in place that made that truly like not, not that it was like a nothing burger, but it was not that big. It wasn't the catastrophe, you know, that it kind of was here. And that's because there was regulation, you know? Yeah. So, so I think that, that folks are coming around. I think the serious builders, and put it that way, there are obviously the folks who are coming into scam and rug pull and all that kind of stuff. And they're, of course, going to be in a different category. And I don't think we should give them any more airtime or consideration, although we have to acknowledge their existence and do our best to kind of eradicate them, is my view. Um, but, you know, others who I think have for some time been saying, you know, we are legit businesses. We are here to perform a service. There's clear demand for that service. We want to do that in a way that meets, you know, the baseline requirements of what you consider a reasonable business model, you know, all that kind of stuff. We just need some assistance in what the heck that means and how to do it, you know, in the United States. So I think this is just kind of a, a maturing. And now I think a lot of those people, you know, look, crypto took aim at some of those folks for some time and was like, well, yeah. you're not fighting regulation. You're not part of the community and you know, whatever. You're not legit, whatever it was. And now I think some of those folks feel more confident and coming out and talking about what they've been doing and saying this is what we've been trying to do. And and I think that is also healthy. I think that represents a maturity and and, and growing up of the industry as a general matter, which, you know, again, I think it's just evolution. These things happen and change over time. Yeah. Uh, but I know we have to wrap up. So, yeah. you know, uh, of course, Michael, we could always go on for another, <laughs> another hour. <laughs> of That's, uh, yeah, always, always fun. I mean, we'll do it again, we'll again next week. Uh, we, I think we have a guest lined up for next week. So we'll uh, we'll get back on that schedule. Let's wrap it up there then. All right, Sheila, thank you once again uh, for being there at Consensus with me. It was wonderful to share the another stage with you, uh, the legitimate one, uh, Consensus. And, yeah. Um, if you weren't there, everybody, you know, make sure you get your tickets for next year because it truly was a, a rewarding event. Lots and lots and lots going on. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. Come back next week for another episode of Money Reimagined. Bye for now. You've been listening to Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren. The show has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau. Our executive producer is Jared Schwartz. Our theme song is Aida by Neon Beach. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. 